The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Rockheads, stop all cat shaving activities and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Rory Blythe. This is Jeff Maciolik, here to announce show number 98 with guest Mark Dunn, recorded live Friday, January 28, 2005. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net. Training developers to work smarter and now offering hands on VBNet, ASPNet, and C Sharp classes online at www.franklins.net. And by Telerik RAD Controls, the UI essentials for rapid ASPNet development online at www.telerik.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers, online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who's jacked up higher than a prom dress in June, Carl Franklin. Yeah. I can't take credibility for that line. That was actually the line of my former co-host and... Guest tonight on .NET Rocks, Mark Dunn. And, you know, I usually introduce Rory and we have some banter, you know, for a couple of minutes and then we introduce the guest, but I feel like it's like old home week here. So, <laughs> Mark, how are you? Hey, man, I'm doing great. And Rory, you're out there. You're out there. I'm fine. Huh? Yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine too. Cool. You're like the yeah. jealous girlfriend persona tonight. Yeah. Thanks for asking <laughs> Mark first how he was. And not asking me. Well, of course, you know. I'm fine too, you know. Because Mark and I are buds and you are and I are not, right? (laughs) (laughs) Uh It's fine. (laughs) I don't want to be a part of your little Don Rocks club. That's fine. Yeah. At least, uh, you know, Don Box probably won't accuse uh, you and Rory of being, uh, you know, partners. uh, (laughs) (laughs) True, true. Anyway, I did get a few emails I'd like to get out of the way. One came from a guy named Gerardo, and he said, Hi, Carl. I listened to the show on a random night. Hmm. Back in September or October of last year, I was going to listen to all of the shows sequentially from the start. There was probably about 100 hours worth of sound bites already on MSDN. I figured I'd have to listen to one show every single night, including weekends, and scare off the women for more for a little over three months. So it didn't take me very long to start picking the topics I'm interested in and listening to them in any order. What's special about Monday nights? Is there any chance you could make a CD with the tunes you play on the air? I like the jamming freaky funkadelic stuff. I can't remember which shows right away, but some of the stuff would be great to listen to while in code Nirvana. Gerardo. That's not a bad idea. Rory, uh, we should do that. We should put out a, you know, Dotnet Rocks music CD. That'd be kind okay. of fun to throw around at uh, events and stuff. That'd be kind yeah, of cool. I'm done with that. 
You sure you don't ask Mark if he wants to do it with you? <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, Mark has no musical capabilities whatsoever. <laughs> Carl doesn't I care. Listening to music, I can't make. Carl's it. not into you for your music, Mark. <laughs> That's fine. Hey, um, I, there's this other one that I got, and and I'll, I'd like to to know what you guys think of this. Um, Is it addressed to Mark? <clears throat> no. <laughs> Okay, Actually, fine. I'm going to paraphrase because it was it, it was rather wise ass. Um, but as you remember, when we were talking about office development, I think I gave people the wrong impression. I gave people the impression that I had tried um, office programming, like I, I needed to do it, and it was just too hard for me to figure out, and so I gave up. And um, that's not at all what happened. What happened was I never had the up. I never had a chance to actually do it. Like nobody ever said to me, "Hey, I need an office application. Write it." So I never did VBA, and the time that I did mess around with it was a long time ago. And, um, you know, it was one of those things where I looked at the object model and I said, eh, maybe later. So that is the reality. I'm not, uh, you know, and uh, somebody who couldn't figure it out and, you know, had to write an office application. So, so I'm really not in the best particular uh, place to say the object model is difficult to learn or it's not. You know, that was just my opinion, and it probably doesn't mean very much. So take that as it is. So anyway, Rory, how are you? It's been, oh, what, I'm hours fine. since we talked? Yep. Yeah, I'm, I'm fine. Um, yeah, I'm good. Mm-hmm. What have you been doing today? Oh, nothing. You know, meetings. Went out and took uh, Jim Blizzard, the local district evangelist, out to drop his car off at a... Uh, at a little local body shop, and and then I came back, and that's all, you know. Um, if I sound surprised, just it's been a while since you know you've asked me how my day went. You know, you just haven't been caring lately. It's like there's somebody else who's got your attention. And I just, yeah, but everything's everything's fine. I mean, if you if you really care, <laughs> of course I care. I can't. You have no idea how much I care, man. Oh, well. <laughs> I'm sorry. Could, could you hang on real quick? I have a I have a phone call here. Hello. Well, whoever it was hung up. Could we just get on with the show <laughs> so we can go see the counselor after this and everything? Okay. How's Adika? Oh, Adika. Adika's fine. Oh, um, she's doing really well. How's yeah. Mark? I don't know. Why don't you ask him, man? Hey, Mark's doing great. Hmm. Good. <laughs> All right, come on, let's get on with the show. <laughs> We've beaten this joke to death. So, um, so Mark, what have you been doing? It's been a long time since you've been on this show. I guess, you know, the last time was sort of a roundtable. We had a bunch of people on, and uh, you didn't really get to talk very much, but, man, it's been so long. What's What What have you been doing all this time? Uh, well, you know, we, we've been doing a lot of training with my company, and we delved into uh, – to doing consulting work, and uh, I've always said we were reluctant consultants because yeah. I've, I've tried to brand as a training company. And uh, you know, this last year we actually generated more revenue from consulting projects than we did training. Wow! Uh, we we just recently uh, got our partnership with Microsoft uh, as uh, you know a partner under E Business uh, Solutions. Uh-huh. Uh, so we've been doing some BizTalk SharePoint stuff. Uh, you know that that's pretty exciting. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And the technologies that you you've been personally digging into. Well, of course, uh, 
you know, from the .NET side, ADO.NET is of great interest to me. I'm kind of a SQL geek and a programmer, and uh, nothing ties those two things together better than ADO.NET. And, of course, I've been a longtime fan of BizTalk, uh, which is the other topic we're going to be talking about tonight. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. So ADO.NET 2.0 is really what, uh, what you've been looking at. What's, uh, what's so cool about ADO.NET 2.0? Oh man, there there are so many cool features in it. It's uh, it's tough to to know where to start and kind of get through them in a half hour. But uh, I guess the major stuff to look at would be uh, Mars, uh, the new support for data tables. Uh, you know, you can serialize those uh, in binary format. Oh, cool. you, can, you can work with them independent of data sets, uh, which is something we've really needed for a long time. Right. Uh, if you're dealing with web services or remoting and you want to work strictly with a table. Uh, Performance improvements under the hood uh, for ADO.NET are significant. Uh, you really, you know, to, to see it, it, it helps to kind of write some benchmarks. Uh, you'd just be amazed at how much faster things are. Um, hmm. Other things are like provider factories. Uh, I don't know if you've ever tried to write uh, a provider? sort of independent data layer. No, I haven't. You know, you had those IDB interfaces uh, that existed in the earlier version of ADO. Mm-hmm. Uh, .net. Uh, so you could kind of take an interface-based approach to uh, to trying to make an independent data layer, okay. but but really that was kind of nasty. Uh, well, you now have uh, this this thing called Provider Factory uh, that allows you to uh, to sort of create a pluggable data layer if you want to. Uh, there are also new XML features uh, that are available that work mm. with SQL Server uh, 2005. Uh, very very cool stuff there. Mm. Uh, query notifications, we need to talk about that a little bit tonight. And probably my new favorite thing is SQL bulk copy. Hmm. Uh, so you don't, you don't hear a lot of people talking about that. Uh, I, I actually got into this because Julie Lerman blogged about uh, some tests she was doing with it. Yeah. And I was so astounded at the numbers she put down, I had to you know, go write some code examples and, and see what it did. Wow. Uh, so you know we'll have to talk about that some tonight. It's just uh, yeah. Let's let's amazing. go go through the list. Um, so Mars, the uh, what is it? Multiple result set, um, asynchronous result set. What is it? Right, right. Uh, Mars stands for multiple active result sets, uh, and the basic idea with Mars is that you can have one connection now, and you could have multiple data readers acting off independent command objects. Okay. That that work off that single connection. Now, if you tried to do that uh, today with you know yeah. the current version of ADO.net, uh, you know the data reader would would certainly pose a problem for you there. Yeah, uh, you wind up having to to close uh, the connection and reopen it if you want to, or open another connection if you want to deal with another data reader. So this is only this is only still data reader, so it's forward only, read only. Right, right. You can work this with data readers that uh, that each have, you know, it's important that the data readers have a separate command object that, of course, they're okay. operating off of. Um, and, you know, and this is something, too, if you read some of the different blogs out there about uh, Mars. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I did a lot of research on it when I was trying to get my head wrapped around how this really works. Uh, a lot of guys are, are saying, you know, you've got to be careful not to misuse this. Uh, you know, it's not something you would really look at uh, if you were going to uh, look for a performance boost in the way things work. So what's the immediate benefit, just having to 
Well, so I guess what, one of the immediate benefits is uh, <clears throat> it would allow you to write some, some cleaner-looking code. Uh, if you had a need to pull, uh, uh, you know, multiple data readers and you didn't want to reopen other connections, mm-hmm. it would simplify your code somewhat. But I, I really wouldn't do it for that reason. If you, if you start to think about it, uh, you know, uh, connection pooling is out there, and it's your friend right. when you need to do something like that. That's very efficient for reusing connections. Uh, probably the, the thing that I would most look at Mars for would be uh, some transactional support. Uh, let's say that huh. I wanted to open a data reader and process rows, and inside the loop I wanted to also do some inserts, updates, and deletes on the same database. Oh, okay, sure. So if I want to do something like that, I could use Mars and keep everything in the same transaction scope. Right, and you couldn't do that today. You, if and, you have a data reader open, you have to close that data reader before you can do anything else. Right, or you, you wind up opening a second connection, which right. puts it in a different transaction scope. Uh, so it makes it you know, kind of a nasty thing if you're, yeah. uh, you're trying to, to deal with transactions. Uh, I see. You know, that that probably would be the biggest thing I would look at. So uh, you wouldn't necessarily use these with, like, asynchronous calls to fill multiple tables or multiple collections of data objects? Well, would no, you, you do could. that? I mean, you know, if you if you had some, uh, some web page maybe that you were populating multiple grids on mm-hmm. and you wanted to create multiple readers to do that and run them asynchronously, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if one were going to run longer much longer than, say, another one. Sure. Uh, as long as these guys are all running on different threads, then, you know, the, the quickest one to be finished and get its results back, uh, you could go ahead and process that grid yeah. uh, and wait on the other ones and just catch it with an event. That's cool. So some other things about Mars. Uh, I mean, basically, Mars is a SQL Server 2005 thing. Uh, that yeah, works with the was... SQL client. Uh, but, you know, the Oracle client also supports the ability to uh, to pull back uh, multiple result sets. I was going to ask you, it, it, it is a SQL-only thing, but it isn't. But this is something that uh, has been lacking in SQL Server, uh, that other, other uh, well, as you said, Oracle. But other right, yeah, I mean, it, it is have. something that's been lacking in SQL Server that you've now got, you know, kind of built into 2005 to support synchronous results coming back. Uh, Oracle's had it. Uh, I've read, I haven't played around with this, but I was reading recently on uh, on someone's blog, uh, and I need to get you some links. I'll provide some links after okay. the show uh, to a bunch of resources I have for ADO.net 2.0 that I think you know listeners would, would probably want to read and do some follow-up on it. Uh, uh, but yeah. amazingly, too, let me mention this. Okay. A lot of the development team out at Microsoft, they blog about this. Hmm. So, uh, so man, I mean, you can talk about getting it directly from the horse's mouth. Yeah, uh, you know, you're you're able to to read some of these developers' blogs, and it's just incredible uh, the amount of information that's out there. So, Mars is obviously something you're going to use with data sets and data tables and data readers. Maybe, um, maybe not. Does does is there a connection with the with the data adapter with Mars? Um. Uh, well, I I don't really know if I would say there's a particular connection with the data adapter with it. Okay. Uh, I mean, what I've I've been playing around with it so far, I've just used uh, data readers and commands with it. Okay. Uh, but you know, it's it's kind of a big topic. I think I haven't sure. looked looked into it as deeply as as I've wanted to so far. Well, I know that the the data adapter uses the data reader under the hood to Absolutely. to populate itself, but I'm not so sure that. 
I mean, w- unless you used the data adapter simultaneously, you know, asynchronously, and they were both using the same connection. I don't know. Well, anyway, um, what about you said performance in ADONet 2.0? Now, I know Rory's not a data set guy at all, and, you know, he's really interested in, you know, calling store procedures manually and, and this kind of stuff. Uh, uh, you know, are those guys, are you going to see a lot of performance enhancements just in that fundamental uh, act? Uh, yeah, I mean, one one thing that you uh, you would see immediately for performance with a data set, uh, uh, and and particularly with a data table, is um, is just the the indexing engine for the data table uh, has been completely rewritten. Uh, so whenever you're doing inserts, updates, deletes, uh, all of that's going to be much faster now with a data table. Uh, you know, it would uh, effectively result in faster fill and merge operations. Uh, Whenever you're working with with data sets, uh, so you know that's that's pretty impressive uh, enhancement just in itself. Uh, I mean, just to give you uh, an example, I'm trying to think about something I wrote a while back. Uh, I was inserting about a hundred thousand rows uh, into a table as a test with uh, ADO 1.1, which that took about three minutes, uh, mm. and I created a, a unique constraint on one of the columns that I defined. Uh, for the uh, the data table itself, I went ahead and took that test, pulled it into ADO uh, 2.0, and the same operation that took three minutes with the old version took about four seconds uh, with the new one. So that that's fairly significant. Don't three you? minutes to four seconds. Three minutes to four seconds for a hundred thousand rows. Hmm. Well said. <laughs> well, it was something to think about. The first thing that I was thinking about when I heard that was, uh, I was wondering if maybe there would be some other operations that used to take, you know, uh, three seconds and now take four minutes or whatever it was, whatever the, uh, hmm. Well, now, you know, to look at, look at my test, I'm not really connecting it to a database. I was simply creating a data table and then, you know, mm-hmm. writing a loop, uh, that wound up, uh, sticking, you know, a hundred thousand, uh, rows of, you know, uh, Blooched up data that I created into it, hmm. uh, okay. so we didn't have the overhead of me communicating back uh, to a backend database with that. Hmm. But your code was essentially the same architecturally, right? Yeah, absolutely the same. That is so, very uh, interesting. Along those lines, is is ADO.NET two going to be totally backwards compatible? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So if you uh, if you take your other code and pull it in there, uh, it should run fine. I say should because I haven't migrated everything I've written over to it yet. Uh, but the team didn't want to make you have to rewrite all of your ADO code whenever you upgrade to the next version of it. Right. Yeah. yeah, earlier I thought you said that uh, you were talking about the IADB interfaces, and uh, it sounded almost as though uh, you had implied that they had been dropped, but I guess as long as they're still there, then... Right. Yeah. If you're if you're using IDB, the interfaces, uh, you know, shouldn't be a problem. But I I think you would probably want to look at the the DB factory if you're trying to write some kind of pluggable uh, mm-hmm. data layer of some sort. Now yeah, I've been messing with yeah. the provider uh, model in there a bit, and it really is pretty fantastic. So that stuff is great. Definitely is an improvement over the previous universe. But anyway, go on, Carl. You had a question? Well, no, I was just going to ask him about um, the update method of the data adapter. Because, you know, the, to me, um, that method right there sort of represents the, the biggest black box in .NET and ADO.NET. You know, you just say update, you cross your fingers, and then magic happens. Right. And um, 
Yeah, if you have optimistic concurrency, it's often black dark magic that happens. Yeah. <laughs> so let's let's um, let's go through the process of what happens when you do an update, and um, and then maybe about some enhancements that that have been made in ADONet two o. Right. Well, one that one that I just came across, and in fact, uh, let me give a shout out to this guy named Bill Ryan uh, up in in Greenville, South Carolina. Uh, I guess it was a week or so back, I had some time off and was just looking around at what the user group talks uh, you know, were in the area and saw that somebody was doing an ADO uh, net to a user group talk up in Greenville. So, uh, so me and some guys from my company you know, took off on a road trip and decided that we would drive up there and just uh, you know, uh, kind of sit in and listen. And this guy did just an absolutely fantastic talk. Uh, and something that he brought up that I hadn't really looked at uh, was this property called uh, accept changes during update uh, that you have whenever you, you do updates. And that's in one one now. Uh, let me think. I, I didn't think yeah. it was in one one. Is, it is. Is it in one one? Yeah. Well, it may be the behavior that he was talking about is different on this one. Okay. Uh, but anyway, he was saying it would stop adapters from calling except changes uh, on each row as it updates them. Oh, okay. So, uh, so you could you could control that. Uh, so that that might be nice for you know dealing with some transactional uh, code that you're writing. It seems like there's a lot of those properties that you know because update is such a high level thing. You know, there's a lot of flags in there like. Uh, like uh, ex- oh, you know what it is? Except changes on fill, I think, is the one that's in there. Um, except changes during update, maybe. Yeah, I'm sorry, uh, I can look that up real quick. But um, yeah, when you do an update, essentially, what's happening there? Just to give the listeners a little background, is that uh, the data adapter is getting all of the rows that have changes, and it's iterating through those rows and you know, saying, what is this row? Is this an added row? Looking at the row state of that row. Is this an added row? Then I'm going to call the, uh, you know, the insert command. And if it's a deleted row, I'll call the delete command, et cetera, update command, whatever, and plug in the parameters. And then it causes, it says, as you said, Mark, it, it um, it's calls accept changes on the row if there was no problem. And if there is a problem, by default... This is what I always found weird, and it, I guess it works well for ASP.NET, you know, where you're sort of stateless, but in a stateful um, situation, it's not so great. It just exits. It throws an exception. If the SQL server throws a SQL exception, it just stops what it's doing, and some of the changes may have gone through, uh, and it'll just abort. So there's a one of these Boolean properties that says um, uh, continue update on error, Right. And right. you set that to true, and it'll just go on to the next change. So, so it looks like this um, when you're talking about here, just to reiterate, except right. changes during update. Exactly, and I mean just just what you were talking about is is you know the perfect intro to you know what if I had something that was transactional that I wanted to deal with. Yeah, so right. you know, if I if I've got it in the scope of a transaction, then accept changes has been called on all those rows that have gone through up to the point that that I hit some sort of an error. So even though you know I might be able to to roll changes back in the data set, how am I going to uh, you know to fix that uh, or in the database? How am I going to fix that and sync it up with the data set that I have? 
Yeah. So if you uh, if you have this setup that we were just talking about, uh, you can prevent it from calling accept changes on each of those rows. Yeah. And then That's if cool. your transaction commits peacefully and everything is is all copacetic, then you could you could go through and and sync it and call accept changes yourself. Right. And what we have to do now is um, actually open the connection, begin a transaction, get a transaction object, and set that transaction object reference into the transaction properties that your insert, update, delete commands, and then you can do a rollback or a commit. So I guess this means you don't have to do all that code. Yeah, you, you're not going to have to write all the nasty code that you used to, to have to write in the past. Uh, it's a, a much simpler pattern to follow. Uh, and actually, a guy that, that has written a lot about this, I, I can't think of his last name. His first name is Angel, uh, and he, he's on the ADO.net team. I'll give you a link to his blog, though. But uh, he started back, I guess, in July of last year, uh, writing you know once a week or so about different features in ADO.net. Cool. Uh, you know, he's he's just got a wonderful resource for information uh, about late-breaking changes that are, are coming out, you know, in the next community bill, that kind of thing. Awesome. And I, by the way, I did confirm that. I was wrong there. Um, except changes during fill is the one that's in there now in 1.1. Except changes during update is new. I'm sorry about that. Sorry. Right. And some somebody on IRC is already, uh, you know, if you guys are on IRC, oh, I've yes. got the, the blog Weblogs.aspnet slash angelsb. Right. Cool. Excellent, excellent blog if you, uh, you guys want to take a look at it. And, you know, you can put a link up to it. I'm sure he'd, he'd appreciate more traffic. You bet. Serializing data tables. This is serializing data sets has always been a sort of a, uh, a weird thing. You know, it was, I think it, when, when we were both interviewing Dino Esposito, Esposito, excuse me, the barbecue king, Yes, yes. Yep. Love Southern barbecue. If you if you ever have a chance to take Dino Esposito out to eat, make certain you right. take him out and get some Southern barbecue. Right, he loves barbecue. Hmm. Well, anyway, um, he he was the guy who told us that uh, the data set, sort of the the binary formatter, has this fork in it that says if I'm going to serialize a data set, particularly, it says if the object is a data set, serialize it as XML. Otherwise, you know, use the use the the standard binary serializer. And uh, it doesn't work with data tables. Doesn't work with you know data rows. Yeah, so and you're, right, you're huge... absolutely right. I mean that that's the the problem with the current version of it because it uh, you know even if you're using a binary formatter, if you're if you're dealing with a data set, it's going to serialize as XML no matter what. Right. Right. So now they fix that. Uh, so in the new version of it, you. Uh, you have the ability to use the binary formatter with it. That's great. Uh, there's there's a new property called remoting format uh, that hangs off both the data set and the data table. So you can set you know what serialization format you want to use. It can either be binary, the default is XML. Uh, so so if you leave it at the default, you still get exactly the same behavior with ADO. Uh, 2.0 as you've got with you know the 1.x. That's awesome. Uh, versions of it right now. But if you go in and change the remoting property to, uh, you know, serialization format dot binary, then you're off to the races, and you you're able to, uh, you know, write a pretty simple test. And again, a benchmark here uh, says more than than I can, you know, lot it for its abilities. Uh, you know, I, if you're out there playing with this, go ahead and write yourself a little example and just see what it does. 
so this is something else I was recently playing around with. Uh, I had, you know, about 500,000 rows that I'd stored in a data set and decided to use, you know, uh, both the binary and the XML formats to write it out to a file. So 500,000 rows, I tested it, uh, you know, with, uh, with XML. And uh, the, the file size of it was about, I want to say, roughly four or 500K. So then I turned around and set this to binary and went ahead and serialized it out, and it was about 80K. Wow. So what a difference, right? And that's just writing it out to a file. Imagine now if, you, if you, you know, you're writing code where you serialize this through web service or through remoting. Uh, imagine you know, what you're cutting down to pass over the network. Um, Mark, we had a question from the uh, chat room from Gary DeRosha, and he says, uh, can, st- uh, can store procedures in SQL Server take arrays as input now? I, I don't actually know. I haven't played around with uh, some of the new stored procedure goodies that are in SQL Server 2005. But you can do a sort of a similar thing, which is this thing you were talking about, the SQL bulk copy. What's that all about? All right, yeah, bulk copy is just a fabulous feature that, that's now available. So why would I want to do a bulk copy? Uh, I need to quickly transfer some data from one table to another. It could be on the same server. It could be mm. on uh, a different server, mm. right? So I, I wouldn't want to have to write a lot of code to do that. Normally, I'd probably today go out to, uh, to something like DTS, DTS uh, and use DTS to move it if I needed to. Uh, so SQL bulk copy is an object that is there if you need to solve that sort of a problem. I want to just quickly suck a bunch of rows out of one table and put them into another one. Uh, you know, again, we've got to look at some benchmarks on this. And, and shout out to Julie Lerman for kind of cluing me in about this. I, I wouldn't have looked at it probably uh, for a long time otherwise. Uh, so I read a little blog entry that she made, and I started running some tests with it. Uh, so how would you normally programmatically wind up copying data from one table to another? Uh, I mean, you might wind up opening a data reader. You know, you pull them all out, and through a command object, you do inserts into a new table, right? <laughs> so, yeah, you're going to process I'm one row I'm thinking I'd do backup table, you know. <laughs> I'd, yeah, try, yeah. I'd probably try to take a, a high-level approach if I could. Right. Well, that would be a worst-case scenario, right. and I'm certain there's probably you know a programmer somewhere in the world that, <laughs> that has actually done this at some point. Uh, you know, I, I could think back to a time when I might have approached uh, the problem that way rather than using something like DTS. Well, if you could do it with a simple thing, but you know, chances are you're not going to be able to. So, yeah. so if you if you want to use SQL bulk copy to pull this off, it's pretty easy to do. All you got to do is open a connection, uh, you know, get a command object, and set up a data reader for it. All right, then next you want to create a SQL bulk copy object. Uh, you set the destination information uh, in the SQL bulk copy object you've got. It's got a method called write to server that you would pass a data reader to as a reference. Cool. And boom, you're done. And once you do this, you, you really have to put a clock on this just to, to see, or, or maybe you don't. Like some of the tests that I did before, uh, you know, I, I would run a test with anywhere from 500 to 2,000 rows. Uh, using the method I just described to you earlier. And actually, I was improving on, on the method of doing the row processing because I was using the batch uh, 
update facilities that that are available now with SQL 2005. Right. Uh, you can you know set a batch size for your rows to to go over the network, which is really cool too. Yeah. Uh, so it would have been faster. Uh, you know this the the bad test that I wrote would have been faster uh, with a new version than when, than with the old version. It would have been much worse. So at any rate, it was taking you know anywhere from like thirty minutes uh, up to close to an hour uh, to process you know fifty thousand to two hundred thousand rows, uh, you know across this thing. Huh. So I started playing around with the SQL bulk copy object because I saw Julie's numbers and was just astounded by them, and it actually proved out what was taking you know thirty minutes to an hour suddenly took you know between ten seconds and a minute okay now this is the second outrageous <laughs> number you've laid on us here man i want the truth you're not just pulling the wool over our eyes are you man no i wouldn't do that <laughs> i wouldn't do it that's why i'm encouraged i mean did you call up kimberly trip and say kimberly come on over here and tune my server before i run this bulk copy thing were you doing that <laughs> no not at all <laughs> what's, on, what's it actually doing me? underneath i mean like what 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 accounts for the change what's going on uh, I have no clue what this does under the hood, and I haven't. Hmm. I, I've actually been curious about that. I haven't been able to find uh, information yet that talks about internally what exactly SQL bulk copy. SQL bulk copy. All you need is a six pack of beer and reflector, man. Yeah. <laughs> or a bottle of. Scotch. Or a twelve pack and iodasm. <laughs> but I, I mean, the really amazing thing about this, though, is. These numbers that we're getting from SQL bulk copy are very, very close to what you would get by natively running DTS to, to move the data. Yeah. Wow. They're not they're not very far off. Jeez. And the first what was the first benchmark you told us about um fifteen minutes ago or so? Oh, that gosh, was like three it was about like three or four different It was like points. three seconds compared to thir- to three minutes or something like that. And it was um shit. Hang on. Oh, we were probably notes. talking about loading, uh, loading a data table. Data table, yeah. So yeah. You, were, you, were, you were stuffing data into a data table and then doing an update? Is that what you were doing? No, they were just inserts. Inserts. Now, now the idea there, if you want to run this benchmark, uh, try to set it up for yourself. Create a data table, and this is programmatic. I'm not connecting it uh, you know, to a back-end database. Right. Uh, go ahead and, and set this up uh, you know, just to be a data table in memory. Okay. And... Go through a loop and insert, uh, you know, fifty or a hundred thousand rows oh, okay. of data into All it. Right, okay. And then, you know, to to really get advantage of, of the new indexing engine in it, uh, you can, you know, set a unique constraint on one of the columns, and then turn around and, and try to do this in ADO.NET 2.0. Same code. And same it's code, same, exactly yeah. the same code. Jeez, wow, that's that's incredible. It is. I mean, it, and, you know, and that's that's why I, I just want to encourage listeners. I mean, if you get the community build, uh, write some code with this. You know, sit down and just start playing with it. Uh, you know, it, it'll be your new hobby. Uh, you know, instead of playing ha- Halo, you'll be out. You know, writing ADO code uh, <laughs> till the late hours of the morning. Uh, which, speaking of that, I'd never played Halo until this Christmas. I got really? Halo for my son. And just got totally addicted to it for like a week and a half. <laughs> <laughs> so your son didn't get to play. Well, we we actually were both playing with it, but man, it's what a great game it is. Have you seen Halo Two? Not yet. I've I've heard good things about it, but I haven't seen it. We we don't have an Xbox of all things. We we wind up playing PC games all the time. Okay. Here in the Dunn House. Jeez. Yeah, I, I I'm I don't know what Rory thinks about games, but. I I realize the potential for uh, addiction, and so I sort of stay away. 
<laughs> yeah, I think I sent you a link a while back to a game called Snood that, that I kind of got in the Oh, yeah. And really, most of the games I play are not first-person shooter-type games. I, I play simple 2D Man, I'm with puzzle you. games, you know. I'm with you. I like Pac-Man, mindless stuff, because, you know, you write code all the time. Last thing you want to do is, you know, immerse yourself in some, you know, uh, complicated thing where you're going to have to bite the dust for like 10 hours before you can score one whatever. Unlike coding. Yeah. It, maybe it's a southern like thing, but I enjoy checkers of all <laughs> I do. I, I don't like playing chess, but I really enjoy playing checkers. And, uh, you know, if you've got MSN games or whatever, it's uh, <clears throat> real easy to get on there and find an opponent somewhere in the world that's fairly anonymous. And just, you know, I could see you as an old man on the porch in Atlanta sipping a mint julep and playing checkers with your grandson, you know, with a, sort of like a sweater on, you know, and a hat. Yeah, come know, down like, to Cracker Barrel here sometime and you'll see me doing that anyway. Uh, <laughs> They don't have mint juleps at Cracker Barrel, but they've got checkerboards. So, uh, you know, Cracker Barrel's a restaurant. Yeah, yeah. They're up in the northeast or not. Yep, we do have them up here. Yeah. Cool. I don't know how we got into playing checkers (laughs) from talking about ADO uh, Net 2.0, but. So some of the new XML features in ADO Net 2.0, what comes into play here? Okay, what comes into play here, uh, one thing that I've, I've been looking at recently is there's a new data type uh, for XML supported in SQL Server 2005. Uh, so it makes it pretty easy for you to take native XML and just stuff it right into the database and pull it right back out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that's one thing that's, uh, that's probably pretty cool. Uh, if we wanted to look at some internals um, uh, you know, in, inside the data set itself, um, I mean, one, one thing that you're able to do now, a data set or a data table can now handle multiple inline schemas. Uh, so if you wanted to have more than one schema uh, associated with the data table, you're able to do that. Uh, the data set fully supports uh, namespaces now. Uh, so that would be interesting if you've got a data set uh, that you wanted to have uh, contain multiple data tables that you serialize out to XML. Huh. Uh, with the same name, but you wanted different namespaces to uh, to be able to get to those individual data table or the data associated with them, you're able to, to do stuff like that. I was going to say, Rory, is any of this sounding interesting to you? Um, I think I, when, when it came to database programming, I was always, uh, I, I was never quite the ADO.net guy that I would say Mark is. Mark uh, is, it, you, you sound like quite the you know, ADO.net aficionado, whereas I was sort of a casual ADO.net user, um, I might put it, focusing more on ASP.net and stuff like that. I'm, I'm certainly a SQL ADO geek, though. I, I, yeah. just, I love this stuff. I get excited about it. Uh, whenever I teach, you know, classes on uh, ADO.net, I'm, I'm just bouncing all over the room. And, uh, you know, not everyone gets so excited about data. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I do dig it, though, just because... Uh, because I'm not so much an ADO.net person, hearing all of this stuff is actually really helpful because I'm less likely to go and seek this information out on my own. And so if it comes to me in this format, then that's actually great. And, and learning, you know, that I can format, um, you know, data sets uh, with a binary formatter um, to make it easier, you know, to uh, push them across the wire has just done nothing but bring joy to my heart. So Yeah, I got I to gotta second Rory's comments there. In general, doing this show has... I've just learned so much from talking to all these incredibly brilliant people. Uh, you know, it's it's just amazing uh, the the stuff that I've picked up here in these conversations, and I'm sure the listeners uh, feel the same way. But you know, it's always 
it's always great to to learn these little nuggets that you wouldn't necessarily find on your own. Yeah, I mean, back when I was uh, co-hosting the show, man, that was that that was one of the highlights of doing it. Was uh, you know just being able to talk to people like Scott Guthrie or uh, you know Ingo Rammer about uh, remoting. And, yeah, uh, big big payoff there, huh? Yeah, and now with podcasting, anyone can do that. development should definitely check out Telerik RAD RAD control suite the UI essentials for rapid ASP.net development online at www.telerik.com T-E-L-E-R-I-K.com their new sponsor and uh, we've taken their tools for a test drive here and we like what we see this indispensable collection of components cover the major aspects of most web applications from the CMS backbone and the WYSIWYG editor to navigation, content rotation, and charting. Telerik has just released version Q1 2005 of the RAD control suite, which features new major versions of their tree view, panel bar, and charting components. The company has been prominent for frequent releases, so you can expect something new every month. RAD Controls is not merely a collection of ordinary controls, but rather a value set of products, many of which are market leaders in their respective categories. They've received a number of industry awards and recognitions. Moreover, as of June 2004, a modified version of their flagship control, the HTML content editor called RAD Editor, has been made available by Microsoft as a replacement of the default HTML placeholder in Microsoft Content Management Server 2002. All the individual controls can also be purchased separately. If you only need navigation components, for example, you can opt in for the subset called RAD Navigation Suite. A subscription option is also available, which entitles you to new products and free updates for one year. So you should definitely check them out. Telerik RAD Control Suite Q1 2005 for ASP.NET at www.telerik.com. So getting back to the uh, to the XML um, uh, query notifications, let's talk about those. Oh yeah, yeah. Query notifications are are very cool. So this is something supported uh, really by SQL Server 2005. Uh, its service broker architecture comes into play, which is something I've really just started to try to dig into to understand yeah, we uh, everything just... about how the service broker uh, works. Uh, I'll give you a link to uh, to a blog. Uh, or it's not a blog, actually. There are a bunch of MSDN articles that a guy named Christian Kleinerman uh, 
uh, has written uh, that are really, really good about uh, things like query notification. Okay. Uh, and uh, Bob, uh, I can't think of his last name, he's a development or instructor. Uh, not instructor, but instructor. Uh, well, Bushman, we... is that right? What is it? Bob. Boshima. Oh, Boshman? Boshman. Yeah, yeah, I guess that was it. Bob yep. Boshman. Uh, he's written uh, a really excellent article about the way query notification uh, works. So uh, he gets into how it ties into the service broker architecture. Cool. But, you know, basically you've got a lot of things that come together to make it work. You know, the SQL query engine, uh, the service broker comes into play, uh, the, you know, notification requests and dependency classes that are available in the framework as well. And this is sort of how it works. Uh, you know, command objects have a notification property that represents a request. Right. So whenever a command gets executed, if you've got that property set, it issues a TDS packet that indicates a request notification uh, has occurred and it needs to be appended to that request. Uh, so then SQL Server will register a subscription to that requested notification whenever it executes the command. Are you with me so far? Sure. All right. So once all that happens, SQL Server is going to watch for DML statements to be executed against uh, the rows that are returned in the row set back to the client. You want to define DML quickly? Oh, data modification language statements. So okay. you know anything that modifies the data, an insert, update, or a delete, okay. that would affect the row set that you've just flagged uh, for this notification. So if something changes, a message is going to get sent uh, to the service broker architecture. Now, that, will, uh, that broker architecture itself uh, can cause a notification to fire back to any registered clients uh, for that particular row set. So you're going to be able to know uh, if something changed. Okay. And this is much better than, than this horrible way that, that I've kind of clued together to do this with, uh, with you know, the, like how the, the caching the is what work yeah. uh, in ASP. Net 2.0, if you wanted to cache a data set. Dude, I knew you were going to talk about this, because I've done this recently, and talk about Rube Goldberg, man. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Rube Goldberg machine is, is a perfect analogy for this, because now there may be different ways to do it. i tell you what I've done before, and, and this kind of sucks, and I, I you know probably will ruin my reputation to admit that I've written code like this. You've actually already talked about it. I, probably, I remember hearing about it earlier, yeah, uh, many, many, many shows ago, and I thought it was actually really clever. But go on ahead and, and bash yourself. Go ahead. Right. So the way the dependency worked before, you could set uh, a dependency to know if a file changed, right? So what I'd wound up doing before is inside a SQL trigger, uh, causing it to go out and hit the file and make a change to it whenever an update, insert, or delete occurred. And then that would invalidate the cache, and I could have it reload a data set into the cache. So really, I was doing it based off a trigger. So this is not using a trigger. This is using the server you know, broker architecture to pull it off. So essentially what happens is the system has, you know, I, I sort of liken it to the file watcher, right? You know, the file yeah. system watcher. It's like a database watcher. Yeah, you might think that it's sitting in a loop looking at everything and with these big complicated, you know, if-then statements in select cases. But it's really just a notification just says, hey, when you do this, let me know. It's like a delegate, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's really yeah. efficient. Yeah, it is. It's very efficient. And there, there are probably some things that we would want to be careful about as far as using this. I mean, once I started to see how this worked, I, I started, you know, kind of having these nightmares about – 
you know, some developer setting up a notification on a, on a table that was constantly being modified <laughs> uh, by other users. So just think about this for a minute. If we were to set up notifications on a bunch of tables that had a lot of heavy uh, write activity into them, yeah. imagine what you're going to do to the network. You're, you're going to flood the network with, uh, you know, query notifications and refresh updates. So that's probably not a good case uh, to set up, you know, for a query notification. I think probably, you know, the sweet spot is if you've got a table that has uh, mostly read-only data in it that's only going to be modified, you know, here and there. But, you know, let's say if you were storing, a, a, I don't know, gosh, a list of part numbers or something uh, uh, from a lookup table that didn't get modified that much, but you wanted to invalidate the cache and reload it, if somebody were to come in and, and modify a, a particular row, that would probably be a good case to do it. Yeah, that sounds cool. Right. And, you know, of course, if you've got a read-only table, it doesn't make any sense at all to set up a, a notification uh, if it's not going to be modified. Right. Yeah, but that's not any reason not to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right, Roy. I mean, I'm, so, I'm certain somebody out there is going to do it regardless. Yeah, just... Thought that was a little bit limiting, you know. Some people might like to. You know, just for well, before we talk about biz talk, man, I want to hear this Christmas story. Well, let me let me mention one more thing about ADO.net, and I'll give you my Christmas story. Okay. So, uh, so just you know, under the the heading of maybe miscellaneous stuff uh, that I've looked at lately that that kind of impressed me. Uh, whenever you install, uh, you know, Whidbey or the community, you know, preview or whatever you've got. Take a minute and go out and look at the performance counters that get installed, uh, you know, for the SQL and Oracle clients. Okay. You'll be amazed. There are a ton of performance counters now that track things like, you know, soft connections, disconnects, pooled connections, active connections, your free connections. Huh. Uh, we, d- we didn't have all that before. So they've, they've really given us a lot of information to be able to track awesome. uh, what's going on with our, our programs that are, you know, uh, connecting to databases out there. It's pretty sweet. So yeah, it's very sweet. So carjacking, what is this story you're, you're telling me about? By okay, so this, this is my, my Christmas story. Usually some, something you know odd happens <laughs> around Christmas. So I'm, I'm in a hurry to go pick up a picture frame of all things uh, for somebody. And uh, I'd, I'd just forgotten to get a present. So I, I went out to Target uh, you know, here in Atlanta. Uh, large, large parking lot, uh, you know, drove my, you know, Honda white Odyssey van and, and parked it and rushed in. And, you know, what you got to know is whenever I'm home, I kind of grunge out. You know, I look like, you know, somebody people met in prison usually, uh, you know, most of the time. I've got, you know, the shaved head and leather jacket and, you know, ratty pants. So, uh, so I go in, you know, get my picture frame, come back out, and go up to what I think is my van. White van parked, you know, roughly very oh, close God. to where I, I'd already parked. <laughs> Get the remote to unlock the door, and uh, I did notice the lights flash, but I open the door and hop in. So I turn over and look in the next seat, and there's this lady probably about 60 years old sitting there. <laughs> and my first thought was, you know, what are you doing in my van? And she turns around and goes, well, son, are you about to jack my van? And then, w- Was she really that calm about it? Is that a Southern thing to be that calm when somebody's carjacking? Yeah, you? she was, she was carjacking. very, very calm about it. And, you know, and huh. Like she was going to offer you some sweet potato pie or something. Yeah, but go ahead. So, so you know, I'm... 
uh, it's odd that I'm ever completely speechless, but this, this rendered me utterly speechless. I just had my mouth hung open. And she goes, well, I'd appreciate it if you're going to jack my van if you'd let me get out first. And, and I was like, well, uh, I'm, I'm not going to jack your van. I'm sorry. I'm confused. And then she goes, well, you know, there, there help, there's help for people like you. <laughs> then I had to, you know, explain to her that I also had a Honda Odyssey, and I was hoping it was parked somewhere nearby. <laughs> Mark the van that jacker. That is so awesome. <laughs> oh <my laughs> I doubt if she was listening, but that, that was the coolest lady, though. I mean, you know, if I had been jacking a car, I probably would have let you know left her alone just because she was she was sweet and calm about the whole thing. I love that. There's help for people like you. That's great. That's awesome. <laughs> like she was going to offer you some cookies or something too. You know, just, right? That's wonderful. Oh, I don't know. You should have, uh, you know, got her. Address so you could mail her, you know, a sorry, a, a sorry card or something like that. I'm sorry. Well, then she'd probably accuse you of being a stalker, and then she'd tell you there's help for people like you. <laughs> but I'm just glad I didn't go to jail. I mean, you know, she <laughs> jumped out and called the cops. I would have had a hard Wait a minute. Did, did, did your remote actually open her van? Uh, no, it didn't. Uh, you know, okay. her, uh, her daughter was also in Target and had left their van unlocked, and she decided she wanted to stay in the warm van and not brave the cold. Which cold down here is like 55 degrees usually. So the van was running? No, it wasn't running. She was oh, okay. sitting there in the dark with, you know, the door the door unlocked on okay. the, uh, the driver's side. That's funny. <laughs> All right, BizTalk 2004. Now, let me tell you what I know about BizTalk 2004. I know it's a complete rewrite done in C Sharp. Right. And uh, I know it's a lot different from the original... Biz talk in terms of the way you think about, uh, you know, the the sort of the technology, and uh, it, uh, obviously it does the same thing, but uh, which is to simplify and orchestrate business processes. But hey, why? You know a lot. Well, I know a little bit. I mean, I've seen some demos. I haven't played with it, of course, but I've seen, uh, you know, I've seen some in depth demos, and I understand a little bit about it. So, why, um, why do, why does a developer? you know, care about BizTalk? And because doesn't BizTalk sort of um, automate a lot of code that a developer would would uh, normally do? Is this like, you know, should we be, should a developer feel threatened by BizTalk? Oh, no, I don't think they should feel threatened by it at all. Uh, the thing about BizTalk, and I probably wouldn't have talked about it on a .NET Rock show before this version came out. Okay. Uh, I, I've wound up working with, with BizTalk since it was an alpha product, uh, you know, back, I guess, over four years ago now. It's been out for, for quite a while. Yeah. And the first version of it that came out, I mean, certainly from a programming standpoint, you could touch it if you wrote an adapter for it. Right. Uh, and, you know, you would, there were interfaces available. You could write an adapter. And an adapter would be, uh, in, in BizTalk terms, something that would allow me to write data out to something else. Uh, would be a good way to think about it. Uh, so, you know, I, I could have talked maybe from a programming standpoint about writing adapters, and certainly that's still valid. We can still write adapters today uh, with BizTalk, but we really didn't touch it inside the environment. Mm. Uh, there were external tools that you used to, to manage everything uh, about BizTalk, from defining schemas and maps uh, to translate data to setting up messaging with it. Uh, so this new release integrates very tightly into the Visual Studio .NET environment, and that's 
kind of why I wanted to talk about it a little bit on .NET Rocks. Uh, not only that, I'm just on a crusade to go out and evangelize BizTalk. I've been doing user group talks about it recently. Uh, hmm. uh, SOA conference that's coming up here in Atlanta uh, next week. I'm going to be speaking at that about how BizTalk and SOA kind of fit together. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of BizTalk, obviously. And back, I, I've rambled on so much now that I forgot your original question. <laughs> no, okay. So, a .NET developer, why? You know, what? Are, what's a? What's going to be your average .NET developer's experience with BizTalk? I mean, we're not going to be like making diagrams and charts and stuff, are we? Or, or are we going to well, be implementing you, you, code? You probably will be making diagrams and defining business uh, process flows okay. uh, if you're a developer. Okay. Uh, the way the way the marketing was originally presented for early versions of BizTalk, uh, they uh, they kind of said, "Hey, we've got this orchestration designer, and yeah. if you're uh, if you're a business analyst, you can sit down with the orchestration designer and define what the the business flow is going to be." And right. then a developer will come back later and kind of tie this into, uh, you know, the BizTalk solution. Right. Uh, you know, I've worked <laughs> on three or four different uh, BizTalk projects, and uh, that, that just doesn't happen. You no, don't have BizTalk, you know, you don't have analysts out there, business analysts, defining these workflows. The programmers wind up doing all of it. I, uh, I also thought that was a bit optimistic, um, you know, that sort of approach. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the reason I think developers would be interested in it today is, you know, you've got tight integration with it, and I believe now it's finally poised to uh, to really take off. Uh, if you you start looking at some competing technologies like web methods or uh, BEA or TIBCO, uh, if you look at the pricing, BizTalk is going to win every time. Uh, it's it's a better deal than uh, than any of these other other uh, solutions out there from non-Microsoft entities. Mm -hmm. I, I feel stupid, but I still don't actually understand what it is. Um, I mean, I've heard a lot about it, but it was one of those products I never wound up using, and I hear all these words like orchestration and, and, and stuff like that, and I just I don't have anything in my developer vocabulary to really map that you know, so that I can make sense out of it. You really have to explain it with a scenario, right? Yeah, okay. Well, let's, let's back up and talk about some fundamentals of it for just a little bit. So you Yeah, BizDoc for the complete idiot, you know, me right now. So, yeah. So, so usually usually when people think about BizTalk, they immediately think about business-to-business -business communication. So I've got, you know, some kind of partner relationship set up between a couple of businesses, and I want to be able to, you know, process something like a purchase order and get an invoice back, right? So BizTalk is, is a tool that would allow you to take a document that represents that purchase order and run it through a business process flow, uh, transform, you know, eventually the purchase order uh, into some data that eventually comes back as an invoice. So, Rory, what that means is all the little pieces of code that you'd have to write in a, in a process, multiple applications at different points in different databases and different web servers, and all of that stuff can sort of be drawn out with a Visio tool and and then you can actually go and attach code to those little objects, and it writes itself, essentially. Yeah, yeah really, Rory, BizTalk is more about configuration than it is programming. And that's, okay, that's so what I always try to tell, tell programmers. This is going to be a tool that you install. You're going to spend your time setting up schemas and maps to translate data. 
uh, defining, you know, pipelines to input and output data, whether you want to encrypt it or encode it in some way or compress it. And, uh, you know, you're going to set up your messaging uh, the way that's processed uh, with this thing called an orchestration. So if I've got some kind of complex business flow that, that I've got to run data through multiple applications, I could do that through uh, an orchestration if I wanted to. Okay, so how much does this tool actually do for me, though? I mean, it almost sounds like in some cases all you're really doing is expressing intent, right? And then you're coming back later and you're adding some code to make something happen. I mean, where where is the line? Like, where is it? I, I'm I'm so just I so don't understand it. Um, I mean, what does it do for me? What does it does? What does it not do for me? All right, so so the answer, you know, trying to answer what it does for you, it will route and transform data for you. Uh, okay. That data could be a file, a document, a message, uh, something of that nature. Now, internally, BizTalk is generally going to convert that data to XML. Uh, so it's got it as XML uh, once it's inside, you know, the BizTalk process itself. That allows you to transform it uh, using mm-hmm. basically an XSLT that you don't have to write yourself. There's a tool called the Mapper that would generate the XSLT for you to translate, you know, one XML document format into another one if you wanted to. And the routing is probably a big a big thing to talk about. Uh, with this talk and through an orchestration, I can decide how I want to route that data from one component to another one. And those components okay. can be uh, web services. They can actually be COM components. They can be .NET DLLs, right? Absolutely. They can be web services. I could have uh, adapters that stick something directly into Oracle or SQL Server. There are adapters that let me put, uh, you know, things into SAP, for example, uh, you know, the different CRM packages that are out there. So, so is BizTalk actually looking at, like, type libraries and the WSDL and this and that and then generating uh, method calls for you? Yes, I mean, the, Basically, it takes care of generating that stuff for you. Uh, for instance, I could I could set up a BizTalk orchestration if I wanted to, and expose that as a web service. Uh, it would generate the WSDL uh, for the web service. Uh, we haven't really talked about ports yet, but whenever I'm dealing with BizTalk in that sort of scenario, I wind up setting up web web ports for it uh, mm-hmm. to process information in or out. And, uh, you know, the, the web ports would then be exposed as web methods mm. uh, through the web service. Okay, so along those lines then, um, does the infrastructure already have to be in place or can you define like a new web server somewhere and it will go out and configure uh, like a web service on the server for you? Well, no, no, you, you're going to have to buy BizTalk. You're going to need a SQL server to set under underneath it. Uh, I, mean, I mean more the, the actual... The application infrastructure, like all the different points where the data is going to pass through, do, does that all have to be in place, or is it going to do some of that? Those things well? would have to be in place, and in a lot of cases, you're either going to have to write an adapter or buy uh, potentially an adapter to hook into uh, another application of some sort. Hmm. Uh, well, you know, if you were, do, if you were yeah. doing something that was related to, you know, healthcare, right? Uh, you could get, you know, an accelerator package for HL7 HIPAA stuff. Right, and that would have all the formats of XML document, XSLT stuff for those particular formats. Yeah. Yeah, for those documents. That's really what you're right. paying for. You're paying to not have to write and define all that stuff yourself. We were doing a okay. user group talk recently here in Atlanta on, on this talk, and a question came up. A person said, what's the difference between an adapter and accelerator? 
And uh, one of the guys that was doing the talk with me, Mark Berry, who's just an absolute biz talk guru, came up with a wonderful line. He said the difference is about $20,000. <laughs> Which is more expensive. Uh, the accelerator packages are, are going to be more expensive. The accelerators are going to have all the, uh, the document formats uh, usually in place. The other thing, I don't know, Rory, if it's obvious, but um, not only does it set up these infrastructures for you, but it actually executes them. So essentially you have an input point and an output point. And, you know, for example, when you hit a web service and you send an XML document and boom, there it is. Now it's in the system. It, it sort of goes through your your, you know, your orchestration, your logic that you've set up and all of the conditional statements and things that you've done with a flowchart, essentially, and, uh, and, and out spits an invoice on the other end. So, so it, it, it basically lets you set up the orchestration and then that code is not only generated, but you never even have to run it. You, you know, it runs. Mm. Right, and that yeah. that saves you from having to write a bunch of custom programs that tie a bunch of different systems together in a company. Uh, hmm. I mean, whenever you do that, you're you're looking at probably a pretty big investment and time and money to get it done. And then you know it's fragile. Uh, if something changes, you've got to go back and dig into this code. It's probably not going to be that well documented. Uh, BizTalk would solve these kinds of problems. Uh, other things it does too. It tracks the flow of data in a consistent manner that would that would really be hard to pull off otherwise. If you're going across a bunch of disparate systems, uh, the tracking allows you to to know where things go. If there's an error with a document of some sort, you can know where things got off track. Uh, if you're in a business partner relationship with another company, and say you wanted to change business partners at some point. If you've written a custom application to deal with the flow of documents between the two companies, what do you do when you move to another company and they've got different document formats uh, than your other partner did? Mm-hmm. You, f- you change their formats. Right. Right. So if you've you got this talk, you, you simply go out, you re-edit you know, the, the schemas for the different document formats. It would be a matter of tweaking configuration versus having to you know, start over from scratch and just rewrite a bunch of code. So potentially it could save you a lot of money if you're a large company. Uh, you've got a lot of app integration problems. You've got a bunch of different partners that you need to trade data with. Hmm. Uh, BizTalk is definitely the tool to solve those kinds of problems. It sounds like it'll not only save you money in development, but in maintenance as well. Absolutely. Save you a huge amount of money in maintenance. We have a, a message from the chat room from Matt Trevers uh, from Pittsburgh. He says, can you ask Mark about the SharePoint adapter and if he has any tips or tricks for getting it to work? Uh, I have heard, I, you know, I don't want to say really bad things about the SharePoint adapter, but I've heard that there are problems getting it to work. Uh, we, we haven't tried to work with the SharePoint adapter in any of our consulting projects yet. Uh, but, you know, I, I kind of understand his pain. Uh, he's, he's not the only person uh, out there that's having problems with it. Okay. All right. So keep your eyes peeled for updates, I suppose, is the answer there. Right. And, you know, this, this is kind of a first run for, for them really, you know, the, the idea behind, you know, kind of Jupiter was to pull all these different servers together. You're going to have SharePoint server, BizTalk, content management server, commerce server, all working in unison and getting along well together and, and you know, talking to each other. Uh, it's going to take a while to get all that to work, to get the bugs out of it. Yeah. 
What um, have you seen any? Uh, you've obviously done some consulting, big consulting projects with BizTalk. Yeah, we've worked on uh, on quite a few. Some of them I, I worked on back when I worked with Extreme Logic, uh, a company uh, that got bought by HP a while back. Right. And can you name any of those customers? Uh, you know, or some of, tell us stories about uh, their implementation at least. Uh, well, I mean, I can tell you I've worked on some stuff for Mary Kay uh, Cosmetics of, of all places, uh, and also uh, another one with SunTrust Bank. Uh, as far as implementation details of what they were doing, I'm not certain I can really talk about that without, you know, context. Sure, no, that's okay. Just And making yeah. sure it would be okay for me to kind of air, air what they were doing internally. But obviously it was a success. Yes, uh, you know, very, very successful implementation huh. for both of those companies. Interesting. Yeah, and actually we went out and spent two weeks doing training uh, for Mary Kay to teach their developers to use uh, BizTalk before the, the project actually kicked off. Uh, so that's one thing I would recommend for any company that is, you know, going to have your own development team work on it. If you're not going to hire a consulting company to do it, invest in some training for them. So, yeah. so who is, I mean, who's BizTalk actually for? Because I never encountered it um, in the work that I was doing. Well, generally, you would think of BizTalk uh, being a solution for a medium to larger size company. Uh, I'm not really sure that it's a great solution for a mom and pop shop. Uh, although mm-hmm. there's something called uh, uh, Seed, uh, Smart and Easy Deployment, uh, a kind of facet of BizTalk that would be good if you were a small shop and let's say you were doing business with someone like Walmart and they insisted that they wanted you to use BizTalk to talk to them. Uh, you know, Seed allows them to con- to set up a configuration and an install for you as a small company running BizTalk uh, to let you communicate with them without, you know, you having to, to be a BizTalk expert on, on your yeah. end. Yeah. So as far as the pricing goes, uh, the pricing would probably take a lot of really small shops uh, out of the running. Uh, when I say small, you know, a, a fifty to a hundred thousand dollars is an investment to get something up and running. Seems like a lot of money to you. Uh, then you know you'd, you'd wind up getting sticker shock uh, pretty quickly mm. with the BizTalk implementation. But as you said, the alternatives are even more expensive. Right. You you know, if you're a small shop, you're probably really going to write. Uh, you know, some custom code to do things like we're talking about. Right, right. Uh, and you're, you're not going to have complex app integration problems right, you don't like have, a larger company is going to have. Right, and it's an issue of volume too, right? You're not going to have it on the same scale. Right, absolutely. And whenever we talk about the new version of BizTalk, uh, you know, some of the warts that existed with the older one were, were uh, the performance problems with orchestration. Uh, you've just, you know, you've really got to, I'm not going to hit you with statistics again or benchmarks, but... Right. Uh, it's something you really kind of have to experience with a new one. Uh, a lot of that's been fixed. Uh, orchestration runs uh, much more efficiently now than it did in the past. And, and of course, it's all managed code now. You know, yeah, or- it's all managed code now. This is a complete rewrite. If we get back to why we were going to sort of talk about this for developers, uh, if I could talk about some of the tools that are integrated into VisualStudio.net, that, sure. that might help some people listening uh, kind of, get interested in it, maybe. Uh, if you're inside VisualStudio.net, you've got a BizTalk editor to the, that exists. You're going to get a different uh, project type uh, that gets plugged into VisualStudio.net. So if you start a BizTalk project, you can open up the editor to define XML schemas. Uh, so this is a really easy tool to use to define the fields 
uh, that exist. Basically, think of it as almost uh, like a, a record layout editor. Uh, so once you go in and, and set this up, it'll create a schema that can be used later to validate uh, the document. And it can also be used to, to simply, uh, say, read a document in. If you had a flat file, uh, you could read that flat file in with what you define in the editor uh, into an XML uh, document. It would create the schema and validate that when it gets processed through uh, BizTalk. Uh, the mapper itself also plugs into VisualStudio.net. This is one of the coolest things in the world. Even in the older version of BizTalk, I used to want to pull that mapper out just to use it to make XSLTs mm -hmm. because it's super easy. If you've got two schemas, uh, you're able to look at the schema on both sides, the input and the output, and literally just drag fields from one to the other as far as where you want data to be sent from one, one field uh, in the incoming document to a field in the output going document. Now, this is where it gets really cool. There's something called functoids in BizTalk. Have you ever heard of a functoid before? Yeah, I just got rid of one with some preparation H, as a matter of fact. <laughs> oh, I'm glad I was able to set you up for that one. <laughs> so, so functoids allow you to operate on that data. So you can do everything from string concatenation to database connectivity. There's a looping functoid built into it that allows you to do some pretty complex processing on that data when you map it from one format to another one. So aside from the BizTalk mapper itself, the orchestration designer now, instead of being like a, a Visio thing, it actually plugs into VisualStudio.net. Uh, you're able to use shapes to define a, a business process flow. That'll eventually get compiled into executable code hmm. that the orchestration runtime uh, consumes and runs. Wow. Um, the pipeline designer is also something new that plugs into uh, BizTalk. Uh, think about the pipeline designer as preparing uh, sort of ingoing and outgoing messages uh, for further processing. If you want to do something like encrypting or decrypting the data using a certificate, okay. you can do that through a pipeline. Kind of like a sync? Yeah, if you wanted to, exactly. Uh, like if you're thinking about syncs and remoting. Right. Yeah, just, just kind of like a sync and remoting. Uh, if you wanted to compress or uncompress data, reformat it, or, or use some sort of custom validation, you'd wind up using the pipeline designer to do that. Uh, there are other tools in BizTalk as well that are not integrated into VisualStudio.net. There's a business activity monitoring uh, component of it, uh, human workflow services, uh, business activity services. I'm trying to think off the top of my head. Uh, health and activity tracking uh, is another one. Uh, those are external to VisualStudio.net, but they all all play a role in in setting up and processing something through BizTalk. That's pretty cool, man. Um, so the uh, what was it I wanted to say? You know, I have seen people do this in 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 BizTalk, where they're you know they click on and maybe this is what Functoids help you with, but they like click on uh, you know a shape or an object and maybe there's some code associated with it. And the and you know this guy in this demo pulled up this little what looked like a a, a dialog box with a multi line text box in it and typed in some C sharp code and then that closed was, that it. That was a, a functoid, uh, more than likely. Uh, there's a scripting functoid, and uh, you know that that's like your uh, your catch all functoid if you want to do something to to map data from one place to another. Uh, that's exactly right. You can go in and write VB script or C sharp code. Now, of course, you don't have the editor, you know, there, but hopefully, you're going to be just calling a DLL or something simple in there. 
Right. Well, the the main thing is as long as you're pretty open cool, to you writing managed it. code, you can do just about anything you yeah, want. Yeah, I was going right? to say, it's pretty cool that just the fact that you can do that. Yeah. BizTalk has the strangest vocabulary of any product I think I've ever heard of. You know, <laughs> orchestration, functoids. I mean, who was behind all this stuff? <laughs> yeah. Functoid. Pipeline. I mean, I'm sure that you can get used to it, but I've been listening to you guys talk about it and hearing you guys go back and forth and very seriously use the word functoid is really interesting <laughs> to listen to. Yeah, you know, you drag a functoid out and you functoid your way up through the functoid script and <laughs> it's so weird. Well, hey, when you're, when you're on Redmond, Roy, look up Scott Woodgate and have lunch with him someday if he's got time. I mean, you know, he... Will I understand him? I mean, you know... Oh yeah, he's Functoid. he's like the you know a major evangelist for BizTalk. So he, okay, so so he knows who came up with Functoid then. I'm certain hmm. he probably knows exactly. The I guy guess the thing is, I guess the thing is, guys, that you know this is gear, the people who are going to be interested in BizTalk are are really the business people, not the developers. You know, this isn't a tool that comes from the bottom up; it comes from the top down, right? Well, you know, you've got a point, but that's that's the thing I'm trying to change. I really want to get developers interested in BizTalk, and I've tried to think of, of good ways to do that. Uh, I mean, I would appeal from a consulting standpoint that, you know, if you're out there looking for consulting work, uh, they're not a bunch of BizTalk guys hanging around to fall out of trees yeah. out there to help companies right now. So if you want to try to find something that you can get into that's a niche, uh, you know, BizTalk is probably a good thing to do. Yep. It's not that hard to learn. I'll give you a link where you can download a trial version of it and just play around with it on your machine. A lot of the adapters out there that we've talked about, uh, you know, they're, they're uh, trial versions of those adapters as well. If you just want to play around with them uh, to learn how they work, uh, you can do it. And it's not going to cost you a lot of money. It's just going to be time. And you know, if you're a BizTalk consultant, I think you can you can uh, you know build some pretty premium bucks out there. That's what I've heard. Yeah, specialization is a really good thing in in consulting. So, what are the system requirements if I wanted to get BizTalk up and running on on my machine? I mean, what what, what do I need to have here? Uh, it depends on what uh, what you want to do. I mean, if you're if you're just going to play around with it from you know a developer standpoint of uh, of seeing what it does and how it works. Mm -hmm. uh, you'd need to install SQL Server. Uh, you know, the the download and install of BizTalk is not that big. I'm thinking it takes about 250 megabytes on your hard drive. As far as RAM for you just to play around with it as, as one person, uh, you probably need about half a gig of RAM on a machine. Oh, okay. uh, you know, That's it doesn't bad. have to be huge. Now, if you're going to, you know, implement, uh, you know, some kind of real-world solution with it that's going to have a pretty big load on it, uh, that's a different story. I mean, you, you see, you know, uh, four-way boxes out there with, you know, four gigs of RAM on them, uh, you know, uh, handling BizTalk uh, orchestrations running them. So, uh, you know, in a, in a load uh, situation, you, you may need some pretty serious hardware to, uh, to get the performance level that you want. Yeah, well, I'm on the sales and seminar team, so I don't think real world is going to be one of my <laughs> uh, <laughs> one of my problems. So. But that's so, actually really cool. I thought I was going to need to have you know like twelve servers all running in here and heating up my apartment. But if I only need to have one one box and half a gig, how does it, how's it going to run inside a VPC? Is it going to do all right? Yeah, it runs great inside a VPC, and in fact, that's uh, that's what I usually do with it. Uh, I've got a notebook here with a gig of RAM on it, mm -hmm. uh, and I want to say it's a, a uh, 2.4 gigahertz Pentium uh, hmm. that I, I run VPCs of BizTalk with when I go out to teach it, and it works great. Hmm. Cool. 
And, you know, in fact, I've seen a guy, you know, running it with, uh, with less than a gig of RAM. But uh, if you're going to run VPC, I'd, I'd want at least yeah. that much. For and that, that's, yeah. you just need that for VPC in general. Are uh, you guys right. watching the chat room? Some of these great lines like, uh, uh, I was a chronic orchestrator until my doctor said if I didn't stop, I would have too many functoids. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, I fixed the problem. Uh, I was in the discombobulator of the functoid jitter. (laughs) (laughs) I love my homies, man. These guys are great. All the guys that hang out and listen to the live show, man, they they just thrill me. That was Sergio P. and Lawrence, by the way. Those were the two people who had those comments. Great stuff. That's awesome. I was laughing at you, Mark. I don't know why I said that, but like you would think I was laughing at you, but I was sitting there chuckling to myself and thinking, he might be thinking I'm laughing at him. Oh, no, it's okay. I'm, I'm used <laughs> to people laughing. I enjoy bringing joy to others. <laughs> well, yeah, you carjack people and they laugh. You know? <laughs> yeah, so, I know. Yeah. Made a, made happy a to see you. while attempting to steal her van. <laughs> oh, my God. Hey, before we uh, wrap it up, I, I, I want to say, Mark, have you seen the new website, the .net rocks.com website? Uh, no, I haven't. I haven't looked at .NET Rocks.com. I didn't know that was out there. I, I usually go look at it through the Franklin's.net. Right. Well, we have a um, a new business partner, Nukeation, and uh, Dax Pandy is the, the guy there. He's basically done a complete overhaul of all of our websites here, including .NET Rocks. And um, earlier, <clears throat> excuse me, in 2004, uh, the guy who owned .netrocks.com said, hey, I own it. You can have it. And I hey, was pretty was floored. So, But I wanted to wait until we got a new site. So uh, so Dax, uh, we hired Dax to, to write it. And, uh, you know, I just had to do a little bit of tweaking. It worked with our existing engine that I wrote before in uh, in VBNet and SQL Server. So www.netrocks.com is up. And, of course, you know, the existing website will forward to it. So, yeah, go ahead and check it out. And also, he did Mondays, mondays.pwop.com, and uh, also www.pwop.com. Yeah, I lo- you showed me Mondays earlier. That was phenomenal. Yeah. I, I love the toilet paper you've got for the, yeah. uh, the staff down there. A couple of people wanted to know if it was like .NET Nuke or something. No, it's all 100% uh, me and Dax, basically. Um, I wrote the, the back end, the, the components in VBNet, SQL Server, Store Procedures, Data Sets. And uh, uh, Dax wrote the front end, and we just bolted them together, and uh, there it is. Hmm. So the guy's brilliant. Um, and I would seriously uh, recommend Nukeation, N-U-K-E-A-T-I-O-N.com, for anyone who wants to do some really, really good kick-ass website design. He's awesome. Awesome. Hey, before we, we wrap up the show, let's talk about code camps a little bit. Code camps. I, I made a note here, and I almost forgot to bring it up. Yeah, code camps. So, so you've already been involved in uh, some code camps up in the New England area, haven't you, Carl? Well, I was involved in one that involved a lot of people. And then I was uh, also poised to do one just by myself uh, on VBNet. And we actually had 480 people sign up. Holy cow. And it's free. It's on the weekend. It was on a Sunday, but it just happened to be the exact moment that the biggest blizzard in Massachusetts history hit and dumped on, uh, you know, the entire area and the roads were frozen solid and nobody could get anywhere. So I got uh, snowed out of it. So we rescheduled it for February 20th 
up in Boston. So yeah, I'm I'm really really excited about Code Camps, and it, it started in Boston with Tom Robbins. Cool. Yeah. Well, uh, one reason I wanted to bring it up is we're going to be running one here in Atlanta now on May 14th. Sweet. So we're we're just in the early planning stages for it, but I'm uh, just really pumped about it. Awesome. And it's a free event, right? It's on the weekend. Right. It's going to be a free event. Uh, the one that we do here is going to be at the Microsoft offices. They just moved from Dunwoody in Atlanta up to Alpharetta, so it'll be at the new posh Microsoft offices ah. in Alpharetta. Ooh. And we're we're starting to line up speakers. Uh, if you're in the Atlanta area, or if you're a celebrity speaker of some sort that might want to come to the Atlanta area on May 14th, uh, please drop me an email at markdunn at mindspring.com and let me know if you'd like to speak at this. One thing I'm really trying to do is encourage uh, first-time speakers to, to get involved with it. Uh, if you are not sure if you'll be comfortable speaking uh, in front of a crowd, uh, what we're going to try to do is pair you up with another experienced speaker so you can co-present uh, a topic with them. You go through some rigorous training. You have to uh, strip naked, go out in the middle of a busy intersection with a megaphone and, uh, you know, with a crowd of uh, 30 or 40 people around you and, and try to communicate. So that's the training ex- uh, program, right? Right. Uh, there there have been some other co-camps going on recently, too. Uh, there was one down in Florida. I don't know if that one's run yet or not. I believe it was in the Tampa market. Uh, there's going to be one coming up in Raleigh, uh, North Carolina, and also Charlotte. Uh, and if, if you don't mind, I'll get dates and, and links to information about those uh, so we can post it up on the show site. Sure, we'll do that. Excellent. But yeah, I think co-camps are a really wonderful idea. I mean, the, the great thing is it's just a grassroots movement, uh, you know, to get developers excited about exchanging information with other developers. Nobody does community like Microsoft. That's Absolutely. Just the God's honest truth. Well, not, I mean, not only community. I mean, just, just think about the wealth of resources. If you want to learn about any Microsoft technology, I, I'm, I'm always just in awe of everything yeah. on MSDN. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it's just, you know, what can we say? Yeah, and it, you know, like I said, when I started looking into ADO.net 2.0, uh, just the numerous blogs out there of guys writing about it, uh, it it's just really incredible. Uh, the Internet's uh, a, a wonderful and great thing. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> yeah. So what else is on your horizon, Mark? What are you going to be doing anytime soon? Oh, well, there's something I am, I am doing that, that I wanted to mention. Uh, I, I work a lot with uh, Auburn University's Extension and Montgomery uh, doing training classes. Mm-hmm. So a while back they asked me to, uh, to think about doing a gaming class huh. for them. Wow. And I, I said, sure, you know, I'll put together an outline. And I, I thought, you know, there was a VB class that I taught to a group uh, at one point. Somebody emailed me and said, hey, give me a training story if you're going to be on .NET Rock. So here's my training story. Cool. So I had this, uh, this class uh, with some really talented developers uh, that I don't know if they got signed up for the wrong one or what, but they were in like this introduction to VB.NET class. Huh. So, like, you know, the first hour, uh, we, I was going over the basic, you know, stuff, and they said, hey, that, that's not us. Uh, we want to do some cool things. And I, I said, well, you know, what, what do you want to do? And uh, they said, hey, why don't we try to write a game? 
so I thought, you know, Tetris would be a good game to uh, to attempt to write in VB.net. Sure. Uh, so we spent a week kind of going through writing uh, the game Tetris in .net, and we're able to pull off a pretty good version of it by by the end of the week. Cool. Uh, so I thought back, you know, if I wanted to teach introduction to game programming, Tetris is like the Hello World program of gaming. <clears throat> Sweet. Uh, so I, I decided that's what I would do. And uh, went ahead and published the schedule, and believe it or not, this thing was published to, to be taught out in March. It sold out in two weeks. Wow. Wow. So there, there was, was definitely a demand. There were people interested in, uh, in learning about writing games in VB.net, apparently. I guess it's a good way to learn to program in VBNet. You know, we have something that's a little more interesting than, you know, getting data in and out of databases and into business objects, which tends to really be repetitive and mundane and boring. Yeah, once you learn the, the right pattern to do something like that, you're, you're pretty much done. Uh, after that, it's just repeating the same thing over and over again. Right. Well, Mark, listen, it's been great having you back on the show. What can I say? You know. Hey, I've, I've enjoyed doing it. I, I love the opportunity to, to come in and talk to you guys anytime. I miss you, man. Miss you guys, now i got to deal with this guy. <laughs> yeah, and s- stay away from my man, Mark. <laughs> All right, guys. We'll see you later. Thanks All right, again. Take care. Awesome show.